This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Bank Chat. If the Nature Podcast is Barack Obama writing you an email in Outlook, then Bank Chat is Justin Trudeau wanting to discuss the philosophical implications of quantum computing. This month, the physics expertise of Canada's Prime Minister, editing human embryos, and what it's like to try and report for 24 hours straight. I'm Kerry Smith, and I'm delighted to introduce my three Trudeaus, David Adam. Hello, um, I am an editor at Nature, and I am partly responsible for the editorials pages. Also, Ewan Calloway. Hello there, I'm a reporter at Nature, writing about life. And Richard Van Norden. Hi, I'm an editor at Nature. Now, coming up this month, 24 hours in a synchrotron... Politicians being knowledgeable about science, should that surprise and delight us as much as it clearly does, and the fuss or the lack of fuss about human embryo editing. Now, first up to the embryo editing story, which in one form or another has been much in the news for the past year. Uh, you and set the scene for us. What was the first report of this, which is now about a year ago, and, and what's been happening since? Yeah, I think it was exactly a year ago. I think Nature first reported that, that scientists in, in China had edited, used, used the CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing to try and correct a mutation in, in unviable human embryos. This mutation was linked to like a blood disease called beta thalassemia. They weren't very effective at doing this, but the report, um, which is kind of a proof of principle, proof of lack of principle, played into this firestorm over you know, whether we should be altering human embryos or other, other cells that you know, go on to form human beings and contribute to the next generation. So that was, you know, really, really, it, it led to a lot of scientific soul searching, conferences, uh, lots of lots of essays that, that David Adam and others got to edit, uh, pro for, against, you know, genome editing, germline genome editing, as, it, as it's called. So it's really been a year of thinking about uh, editing embryos and, and other cells. And most recently, at 6th of April, you wrote a, a story about a new report um, also coming out from a different Chinese team. Yeah, so I, you know, I was just going through going through the journals as you do as a reporter, and I was just like, "Huh, looks like uh, another human embryo editing paper just came out." Is this one is in another obscure uh, assisted reproduction journal? Um, and these researchers 
I think are from the same university or this university in the same city in Guangzhou, China, had used unviable, that is, human embryos that couldn't develop into a human being. They've taken those and tried to introduce a mutation or a variation that provides resistance to HIV infection in humans. So humans who have this gene variant uh, can't be infected with HIV. Again, they weren't very successful. Um, I think they, I don't even remember how efficient they were, but you know, it was kind of more proof that, that there's a long way to go for human embryo editing. And these experiments, um, it emerged in my reporting, actually had occurred in 2014. And they were kind of like in in limbo, I think, during this brouhaha over, over genome editing. It took, you know, eight months for the journal to, uh, that ultimately published it for them to publish it. And another journal had rejected it. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of these papers that were, were done, you know, you know, one, two, maybe even three years ago, come out. Um, meanwhile, you know, other scientists are beginning to do their own experiments, editing the genomes of human embryos. And each of those stories of people being given grants, people approaching funding bodies to do this sort of stuff, that was getting a lot of coverage throughout the year. But it seems like what was surprising about this latest study to be published was originally there was this big bang and a big nice use of the word brouhaha before. And now there's just been this whimper, right? The coverage isn't anything like before. Yeah. And I've I've been wondering whether that's just a function of like, I don't know, like you know the 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 first report was a first and so everyone jumped on it and now there's been just kind of incessant coverage for 9 months 12 months and so for a lot of the mainstream media they're like we already wrote about that whereas maybe for us in the specialist press who are kind of writing for scientists we see it as as more a big deal so while we think developments might be afoot and we know developments are afoot i think it's not enough to register on the front pages of most places but also the the first report a lot of the attention was on the slippery slope towards editing the germline in a kind of clinical application. When would a baby be born with an edited genome? All that kind of thing. And even some of uh, that that sort of first um, brouhaha, as you said, kind of didn't really talk much about, well, we can still do research into embryos that are never going to live past a few days, right, to learn about embryo development and to see how this technique might work? Or is just proof of principle research also over the line? And since that first report, we've had various large gatherings of scientists and ethicists who've essentially, perhaps is this right, even sort of settled down to the idea that research is just about acceptable if it's not clinical and and is that, is that the right way to portray it? No, I think you're, you're exactly right, Richard, that this kind of year of discussion has kind of made it clear what people are okay with and what people aren't. And so I think it's become utterly clear that GM babies ain't going to happen anytime soon, or at least it's not going to happen with the approval of, you know, governments and most most scientists. Um, what has emerged that is is more allowable is basic research on on human embryos. And you maybe you'll remember the UK back in February uh, gave the go ahead for a scientist over at the Crick Institute down down the way um, to do some experiments, knocking out genes involved in early development in, in human embryos, with the idea that you would never make a GM baby 
missing, you know, these, these master regulator genes. It's just to understand why uh, pregnancies sometimes terminate, which if you think about it, if you're okay with this idea that we are allowed to understand science by tinkering with human embryos, and, and a lot of people, including, you know, the Catholic Church would fundamentally d disagree with that opinion. But if you're of the opinion that that's okay, then what's so different about, you know, editing or tinkering with genes? I was going to say, is there a kind of divide? Because as you say, it's the Chinese researchers who are trying to correct a blood disorder, trying to make an embryo resistant to HIV in a kind of proof of principle way. Whereas with the Swedish and the UK approvals, it's nothing to do with that at all. It's about very fundamental research into how an embryo develops. Might there be a split along those lines? Or do you think US scientists will eventually go for, as you said, trying to correct... Diseases. I think Western scientists will go for trying to correct diseases. They just start waiting for the atmosphere to die down a bit. I mean, don't forget the fact that the United Kingdom last year approved clinical application of this, this technique called mitochondrial replacement, which is to prevent the transmission of, of diseases that are caused by mutations on mitochondria. So, you know, you, you could argue that, okay, if you're going to use reproductive techniques to correct one set of really awful diseases you know, why not cystic fibrosis? Why not uh, Tay-Sachs and uh, Huntington's disease? Um, David, we've been talking about this kind of in the nature news context. Is there any difference in how this might be approached in other media outlets? Well, I would only say as someone who has who has worked at a newspaper where, I mean, th th I think partly this is there's definitely a second man on the moon syndrome, um, you know, uh, in, in pitching stories to to the to the news desk. It would always help almost if the story was really old. If, if the first story was, say, five years ago, uh, you've got more chance of getting this one into the paper than if it was a year ago, bizarrely. You know, the older the original story, the, 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 the fresher the newer one sounds. Um, and secondly, I think, as far as the general public are concerned, um, they know how this story ends. It ends with a baby. And that's what they're now waiting for. And I think all of the proof of principle stuff is interesting to scientists because it affects the way that they do their research. But for the public, it's all still theoretical. And indeed, I think part of the reason the first edited human embryo got such a lot of attention last year was because people sort of hid the fact that it was never going to develop into a baby until halfway through the story. You are trading on the idea that a story about a modified human embryo is the first step towards a modified human being. Does that feel like lying a little bit? As the reporter, the science reporter, and I presume you're talking of your days at The Guardian, sort of pitching this story to try and compete with, you know, the UK's failing economy or whatever else is happening that day. I think, without giving away too many trade secrets, I think reporters do lie to the news desks. Absolutely they do. And, and what they, they sort of cover themselves by making sure what you actually write is, is true. But yeah, I mean, Glad news, to hear it, news desks want to hear... Well, it's the same on any publication, you know, where you're seeking the approval of someone further up the chain. You have to tell them what they want to hear. Yeah, and within reason, I suppose, you've got to sell it. Richard, do you feel like you're being lied to by all your writers? Well, no, I, I, because Nature's audience is different from The Guardian's audience and the editors are different kinds of editors... We wouldn't be liked in the same way, right, Ewan? <laughs> I think, if anything, I kind of undersell my stories. I don't, I don't want to hype them up yeah, too I, much. I, I, I don't think it's deception. I think it is just, um, I mean, you see it in the back half papers. You know, this this incremental breakthrough in, in cell culture could one day lead to therapies. Because that that's the reason we do any of this, is because we know how the story ends. Mm. 
and, and we're trading on that. Every medical story has to end with a cure, you know. Every environment story has to end with the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Journalism 101, people. It's all about self-promotion, apparently, and the promotion of one's own ideas. Well, moving as we were speaking of self-promotion onto our second story and onto the boyishly charming Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Forgive my slight uh, editorialising there. Uh, Trudeau recently hit the headlines, the science headlines, as the star of a viral video where he appears to explain quantum computing completely off the cuff. Uh, he was giving a press conference at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Ontario. And, well, before we get into the nuance, we're going to just play you a clip from the conference. I was going to ask you to explain quantum computing, but... Um, when do you expect uh, Canada's ISIL mission to begin again? And are we not doing anything in the interim uh, while we prepare? OK. Uh, very simply, normal computers work uh, by... Uh, <laughs> Don't, don't interrupt me. When you walk out of here, you will know more. Well, no, some of you will know far less about quantum computing, but most of you. Normal computers work uh, either there's power going through a wire or not. It's one or a zero. They're binary systems. Uh, what quantum states allow for is much more complex information to be encoded into a single bit. Regular computer bit is either a one or a zero, on or off. A quantum state can be much more complex than that because, as we know, uh, things can be both particle and wave at the same time, and the uncertainty around quantum uh, states uh, allows us to encode more information into a much uh, smaller computer. So uh, that's what's exciting about quantum computing, and that's what we're doing. David Adam, uh, you ran an editorial about Trudeau's uh, purported quantum expertise, which we've just heard a little bit about. Um, before we correct him, or before anyone, I don't know if anyone wants to step in and correct his quantum, I'm not sure if I know enough about it, but can you give us a bit of the, the context? I mean, have you discovered since that this was, in fact, off the cuff? What was the setting for this? So, well, it was a press conference. <clears throat> and part of the reason that I was interested in it um, was that it came in the same week as uh, Robert De Niro talking about the the supposed link between vaccinations and autism and Sarah Palin talking about you know, the global conspiracy in, among climate scientists. And I just thought it was refreshing that that somebody was in the public eye was getting praise for talking what turned out to be in quite basic terms about science. And And so I wouldn't want to go overboard and say, oh, it's fantastic that a politician knows that much about a quantum computer and how it works. I think it's interesting that everyone celebrated it. I mean, ha have standards fallen so far that all it takes is for someone to stand up and give a very brief, accurate description to be to be hailed as some kind of, um, you know, master communicator of science or master um, arbiter of all knowledge. And, and I think what we get into in the editorial is one of the reasons that politicians tend not to, to to stray towards science is because they know that that they can be proved wrong on it and, and very easily. We had this beautiful line in the editorial that it's it's um it perhaps is not surprising that a scientist, when they do get to talk about science, would, would pick the quantum world because in the quantum world it's possible to be both true and false at the same time. I did want to ask if the accusations, the alleged uh, staging of this event turned out to be true or not there was a lot of kind of as you say a lot of praise a lot of uh, hand clapping and whooping in the virtual sort of social world well i mean it wouldn't surprise me if 
if a politician going to talk about quantum computers might have been given a brief on what a quantum computer does. But I, I was mainly just struck by the way that he he just seemed game to engage. And even if it was staged, even if it was um a, even if it was a setup, I mean, what a great thing to set up. Because he doesn't particularly, it doesn't advance his own policies. It just shows that he's engaged with the subject. Can you imagine, even if even if he was primed to do so, could you imagine Tony Blair or David Cameron pulling that off? And maybe they just, I don't know, playing devil's advocate, they possibly need to know one day about the economic implications of being able to develop a quantum computer. But Justin Trudeau doesn't really need to know any of this stuff about qubits. Right. I was going to say that when you hear... I was thinking about um, George Osborne, the UK's treasurer. He put a lot of money into the National Graphene Institute in the UK. But the, the talk wasn't... I don't think anyone tried to trip him up and said, explain exactly what graphene is. And, you know, he sums it up in a sentence. He just went on about the economic benefits for UK PLC. So his chat was all about the money and the, the business is going to bring to the UK. With quantum computing, you you could try and make that case, but perhaps it's a little bit more fundamental. And so it's kind of cool that Trudeau sort of just talked about in the sense of what in the basic science is going on, rather than saying, well, quantum computing is exciting because it could allow us to crack algorithms, which we can't do yet. And this could mean economic benefits or such and such, which I'm sure someone has written. Um, And certainly Europe is about to plow a billion euros into quantum technologies we wrote about last week. And that the sort of manifesto behind that has a lot of... um, sort of business implications behind it. So it was, it was refreshing to sort of see him plow down to the level that a scientist might talk at and not just talk about the economic benefits. And after all, maybe it's a mindset thing. I mean, I do, I do wonder, this is complete speculation, but China's leading party members, many have engineering backgrounds. It's actually quite traditional for people to become politicians who used to be, you know, in university positions, for example, and they've got scholarly backgrounds. So do many leading politicians in the States, but they're from law schools and they they come from very different kind of, I suppose, sectors of academia if they come from academia at all. And I just wonder if that has any impact on how friendly the country is in general towards science. See, people make that argument. I've always thought it was a little bit of a straw man because um, you want your politicians to make an effort to understand what it is that they're dealing with, whatever it is, even if it's only for that one day where they have to make a decision. Because I think you wouldn't get away with it with um, with, with other subjects. Does, um, does Trudeau's answer now give reporters ammunition when asking politicians in future? I mean, can, can reporters now sort of justify trying, trying to get a politician to answer about the science and saying, well, you know, I just saw the way Justin Trudeau answered the question about quantum mechanics and I was wondering if you would be able to explain. Well, I, I, think, I think it does happen and I think it's more of a news story when they get it right. Just, just before we move on then, uh, is anyone brave enough to correct hunky Justin Trudeau? Did he get his explanation right? <laughs> I think he got the spirit of it. If I was to nitpick, I would suggest that uh, in a quantum computer... You still have ones and zeros, ons and offs. It's just that you don't look at the calculation and, until it's done at the end. So these ones and zeros can combine in a kind of mixed state that goes across all of the bits. So the idea that uh, you have a current, you don't have a current, and then somehow in a quantum computer, an individual bit can be more complex, that didn't quite make sense to me. Um, but it's true that the end result is 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 going to be the same. 
you end up zipping through calculations much faster. I think, I mean, given that he possibly got this knowledge from a tour of the Theoretical Physics Institute given by quantum physicists, having spoken to a few quantum physicists myself for the podcast, uh, he, he, he did a pretty good job to distill this message that he may have got from them into a little soundbite in front of a blackboard. Okay, so finally then, uh, Richard, you're in the hot seat for a story of having reported for 24 solid hours. Why on earth did you do this? Yeah, I thought it would be fun. And having done it, I can report it's not as fun as it sounds, but it was even less fun for the scientists that we went to talk to for 24 hours straight. And some of them were working for a lot longer than 24 hours. So myself and uh, two people from our video team went off to the synchrotron in Grenoble in France, which is one of about 60 synchrotrons in the world. And in science, these are very well known. These are like the workhorses of science. This is where scientists fly in from all over the world for a quite panic-stricken few days of getting as much data as they can at the bright X-ray light, which is what they want, which is coming out of this synchrotron. And they essentially shine this light at whatever they want to find the atomic or molecular structure of, be that a Van Gogh painting be that a uh, protein molecule, be that a battery to find out its internal structure, be that a fossil. So you see all kinds of things being brought into these synchrotrons and exposed to this light. And very kind of precious time that you have. There's Not everyone gets time. And once you're there, you have to make the most use of your time. And people do stay up for 24 hours. So we went there just to find out well, just what goes on every day in this kind of massive building and we decided masochistically to report this for 24 hours straight and try and get a little little picture of what's happening and logistically that proved almost impossible this is like an 800 meter track like a small version of the LHC but none of the scientists working in these adjacent offices know each other or meet each other or even talk the same language as each other and they certainly don't work on the same thing added to that are access all hours passes failed at 8 p.m so we couldn't get through any of the doors. We had to ring up the scientists in their laboratories to come and fetch us and cart us round. And we ended up sleeping in corridors uh, and having coffee at 4am. And ultimately we did take a nap at 5am and then, and then woke up at 6 again. So it's kind of like the, the grit and hard work of science that just doesn't get reported much. Well, and of reporting, perhaps. I mean, it sounds like a kind of distilled version of what most feature writers would go through. The initial excitement, this is the best idea I've ever had. The sort of, um, you know, the initial rush of enthusiasm, you start gathering information, it becomes more complex, and finally you think, 5am, no one's ever going to read this, why am I bothering? Yeah. <laughs> and also, this kind of reporting, I mean, some people, they go to a motorway service station, and they're like, I will paint you a picture of life from the people that come in all day. That's easy because you're just in one place. Everyone you talk to is part of that life and you're in this small area. When you're going around an 800-metre running track with 40 different experiments and you're trying to catch something in the act and none of the scientists really are very good at explaining what they're doing and you're also intruding on them and very much stopping them from doing what they have 24 hours to do, it's quite hard to find that, to find that pattern and that through story and it reminded me why I'm not doing science. In fact, watching people sitting there for hours on end, clicking a mouse on a computer for the nth time, trying to get a picture of their protein structure. You know, they weren't, they weren't solving mysteries and shouting Eureka. They were just looking very, very, very tired as the 15th click came up blank. And then they had to reset it for another hour.
Yeah, they're in they're in the woods, I suppose, of their research and not not necessarily. You caught them off guard. They weren't expecting to have to explain what they were doing. Right, they seemed very surprised to see me. Yeah. Uh, anyone else had any kind of extreme reporting adventures? I once uh, <clears throat> scrubbed into a, a kidney transplant for a cat. Um, a cat? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a cat. At, you weren't a, doing it, were you? This no, no, no. I was, I was observing it, but I was profiling this veterinary surgeon at UC, University of California at Davis, which has, I think, the best veterinary hospital in the world. And he had pioneered organ transplants in pets. Um, and so I, 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 I witnessed the eight-hour operation. I mean, it wasn't really that long, but it was quite a long day getting there at like 5 a.m. And yeah, it was quite interesting. Difficult interviews? Well, the, the hardest interview I ever did was um, I had to do it through at least two, maybe three interpreters um, because I was in uh, I was in the Amazon jungle, is when I was at The Guardian, interviewing um, some native tribes, people who, who were grumpy about um, people stealing their land. And, and they obviously only spoke their native language, which was quite difficult to translate into anything other than Portuguese as it happened because the, the people who knew both languages obviously came from Brazil and then um, the person who could translate into English didn't speak Portuguese so someone else had to translate from Portuguese I think it was to Spanish and then from he had to translate obviously to me in, into English and as you know you know a little bit can be lost in in translation and so we had this rather lengthy <laughs> interview um, during which um, and, I, and honestly, this is true. He actually confessed to a murder to me. What? Uh, yeah, really. Yeah, um, that there was some there were some people who had been um, some loggers who had been bumped off or, or disappeared about ten years previously, and I and I or five years previously, and I mentioned it to him as you know, do you know what happened to them? And he went, Oh yeah, we killed them. We killed. Them. See, that seems like it probably wouldn't get lost in translation so easily as some nuance. If they genuinely just said, we killed them, and that was yeah. true, even if it was translated three times, you can be pretty sure. So that was, it was almost the highlight of my reporting career. You know, I solved a, solved a murder, and yet it barely even made it into the final piece. So what's your most extreme reporting, Kerry? Um, well, it's pretty difficult to compete with someone confessing to a murder, so nothing on that scale. But I once ate um, an insect for science. Does that count? I was having dinner with a whole bunch of uh, Chinese paleontologists and associates and I was spending a few days with this guy that I was profiling who's one of China's top paleontologists and I needed, you know, quite a bit of time off him. It was a profile so I needed to sort of get him on side and he was sitting right opposite me at this dinner which mostly involved tofu, I was relieved to see, until it didn't, until there were these giant, uh, I think they're locusts or something similar and one of the other scientists just put one on my plate next to my tofu and I just thought I can't I can't not eat this now I can't leave this behind because you know I just have to continue to impress these these people uh, until the end of my trip which was another two days but luckily that was the only insect that I saw aren't you aren't you a vegetarian though I am now does that you can't eat insects if you're a vegetarian can you I you know I feel like actually they're the kind of thing we should be eating more of it's kind of a moral stance, and there are a whole lot of them. So if we could use the protein that we could get from like grinding up insects and making flour out of them, I'm well down with that. It would just, certainly taste better than tofu. Yeah, and it had it was crunchy on the outside, and it had like that roof insulation texture on the inside. It was really mm. disgusting. 
uh, before we all are here for 24 hours, uh, we should say goodbye to all the listeners slaving away in the synchrotron, clicking their mice buttons. Please join me in thanking Richard Van Norden, Ewan Calloway and David Adam. Uh, where can listeners find you on Twitter, Richard? I'm at RichVN. Ewan? I'm at Ewan Calloway. And David? I'm at David Neil Adam, but I hardly ever check it. Sorry. What a confession. It's not quite a murder, though, is it? And I'm at Mini Kerry. Find us also at Nature Podcast. And if you've got a minute, pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. It really makes a difference. Click subscribe to have each episode of Backchat and the Nature Podcast delivered to your device automatically. That's all from us. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.